This program is paid for by itswhereiam.com. The content of this program does not reflect the values or opinions of 91.5 KUNV or the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. It's Zandra Pollard with It's Where I Am. Today, we have Women Empowerment 2022, Part 2. So now, we have our panel of mental health professionals. So we have Dr. Deepa Hasija, Dr. Gwendolyn Green, and Dr. Althea Cook. So they answer questions from the audience, um, and they give us a deeper understanding into the Um, intake process. They also talk about employment assistant programs. They talk about inpatient intensive in uh, they talk about intensive inpatient and outpatient therapy. We also discuss how to understand if your loved one or yourself needs professional help. And we also want to make sure that we are acknowledging Sluggin the Magazine, who is our proud sponsor. Here's part two. It is Women Empowerment 2022. We have a second panel here today of women who are actually experts in the field of mental health. Uh, We have a psychiatrist and we have two doctors of psychology. So please be prepared to ask them some questions because I know a lot of us are having a hard time getting through. We do have telehealth, which has made major accomplishments for, for, uh, not accomplishments, but has given opportunity to people who have not been able to get help before. Um, It has also gotten people who need help that have a difficult time getting out the door to get help because that's an issue to get therapy right at home. However, it's made it very difficult for the professionals to keep up with all of the demand. Okay, so that's why I brought these women here who have spent most of their day here with us. So please make sure you ask. Ask, ask, ask. Okay? Thank you. So ladies, can you come out please? We have Dr. Gwendolyn Green. Dr. Deepa Hasija, and we have Dr. Hi, everybody. Hello, I want to thank you ladies so much for being here and being patient with us as we've gone, as we're going through our first Women Empowerment 2022. Uh, The focus is obviously mental health because my show concentrates on mental health and wellness. So again, thank you for being here. As a clinician, American Family Therapist, the first thing I want to know is a little bit more about your family dynamic. So what's going on in the home? Has something changed? You know, reach out and find a provider that's covered so that you can go and get services. 
Most insurances will provide you with a provider directory that will give you names and locations of child psychiatrists, child psychologists, and people who can actually help you to uh, get the appropriate assessments and such done. Then at that point, once they come in and they see like myself or Dr. Cook, we might decide, well, okay, this kiddo has a little bit more going on than what we would normally treat with just uh, you know, individual therapy or family therapy. And at that point, that's when we make referrals to Dr. Hasija or a psychiatrist who can further assess and determine a pharmacological approach for the child. Dr. Hasija, how do we talk to parents about understanding that it's okay if they need a little bit of help? Because we can put on a band-aid, if our leg is broken, we can get it gassed, but we just won't accept that when our brain needs help, we need a little bit of medication. And we'll take a Tylenol. If I have a hangover, I don't have a problem taking a Tylenol. You're getting into drugs that we don't know about. So that can be scary. So how do you open that conversation up with parents for them to understand that it's something necessary for the child? So I, first I'm going to say that, you know, most people have this perception that psychiatrists or child psychiatrists are there just to start medications right off back, which is actually not true. Child psychiatrists specifically, our goal is to first talk to the child, talk to the parent, and understand what's going on. Medication is absolutely a last resort for us. So when a child comes to see me, I usually say, okay, is this a school issue first? Is this a family issue? We go back to, let me refer to the school first. Schools have counselors. That should be the first line. When kids go to school, they're, they're at school majority of the day. So the teachers are seeing a lot of these behaviors firsthand. When they come home, they spend partly time there. So the parents are noticing things. We have to get a holistic view of things. What happened with them as terms of, are they sleeping okay? Did something change in their diet? Did something happen with grandma? Did something happen with dad that's kind of changing the system? So good history is very important in this. And the only way to get a good history is to listen to different, different parts of the team, which is the parents, the teacher, the child is the most important. If you sit and talk to the child and think about things from the child's perspective, a lot of your answers are right there. So when they come to me, we actually take a step back and say, let's listen first. Let's listen, let's refer to therapy first. We'll refer to therapy for 12 weeks. We'll coordinate with therapists and get feedback what is going on with this kid before we even consider medications. As far as child psychiatry is concerned, we do have to do that first in order to even say, you know, we're recommending medication. Because medication is the last resort. Nobody wants to put any child on medication. Um, sleep is very important. Sleep is a big question we ask about. How is your child sleeping? Sleep is Adults don't sleep well, we don't act right, so we can't really expect kids to act right if they're not sleeping well, or if they're not even eating well. That's a big part of it. Um, and then feedback from the teachers is extremely important. 
how the kids behaving in school versus how the kids behaving at home. A lot of the story will come right from there. If someone does need medication, I'm not saying we won't start it. In some situations where the child is acting completely different, like if weeks have gone on, they're not eating, they're not sleeping, we will refer to the pediatrician first. We'll get blood work done to see if something's going on before we come to psychiatry. So things have to be ruled out absolutely before they come to psychiatry. If something is needed or the kid is hurting themselves or hurting other people or doing something dangerous, for example, like a seven-year-old is so hyper that when the mom says, when we get out of the car, please look on both sides. And the kid's not able to do it. They're just running into traffic, doing something that dangerous. We would treat something like that. You know, we obviously don't want any child to get hurt and not treat them. You can go ahead and clap. <laughs> so I'm going to let you guys ask questions now because we're going to talk about the children, but as I'm understanding, you guys deal with adults as well. And so I want to try and get some of my therapy questions out. <laughs> so let's start with the children. Any questions about children? I'm the child welfare, so I know you guys do the peace services for our kids. And I'm just wondering, what are some of the challenges that you guys find with, you have repeat kids that keep coming back? You know, these parents don't have maybe the right insurance or anything else like that. What kind of advice would you give a parent who has those struggles with probably not having the right insurance or not having the right supportive services, like access to that? Because I know that in our in our city, we don't really have a lot of mental health services that really support our kids. So what are some of the advice that you give those parents? So some of the advice that I give is I do work for DCFS as well, and they do offer for kids who are not insured, they do offer mobile crisis services. They also offer, with some of it is in-home service, as well as therapy. We do have telehealth for them. Even medication management is actually covered free of cost for those kids. So educating you know, the community on that, that we do have this resource. And I'm going to add to that um, what Dr. is saying. Because I too work at DCFS as well. And one of the challenges that I see with kiddos that come into our residential treatment, and you know, they spend six to nine months with us working on behaviors, working on their psychiatric concerns, and then we discharge them and go home. One of the, the biggest challenges that we see is that there's no continuity in the home. So a lot of the things that the child has learned while they've gone through treatment kind of starts to fall off when they get home because, you know, maybe mom and dad are too busy to, you know, do the redirections that we teach or to hold the youth accountable or to actually go in and make sure that they made up their, made their beds and done their chores and everything like that. So one of the things I always try to impress upon the families as we discharge a youth back into the home, I try to give them things and tools that they can use in the home so that they can continue to see those behaviors that we saw in treatment with the youth when they get back into the home. You know, it, it feels more familiar for the youth, right? Because they've spent six to nine months learning these skills, learning how to be responsible, learning how to be respectful, um, learning how to, learning coping skills so that maybe they're not self-harming when they get upset or they get really sad. And so, 
you know, one of the things we want to make sure happens is that the parents have those tools that they can use with their youth in the home. In the younger ages, elementary level, a lot of training is done on ADHD. On the older levels, there's a lot of talks on suicide, how to look out for the signs of suicide, depression, if someone is cutting, if they have marks on them. So the system, the teachers are more aware now, and they are more trained on it. I'm not sure how many hours they do per year, but I know for sure they are trained on behavioral issues and depression, anxiety, how to look out for signs of suicide or if there's a very significant change in behavior, they do reach out to the parents and see what's going on. As far as uh, psychiatry is concerned, child psychiatry, if the parent signs a release of information, we do contact the school and the school counselor does give us information on how the kid is doing in school. We also, there's also IEP programs where you can say, I want a therapist to go to the school. I want them to observe the behavior in the school and also observe the behavior at home. And some agencies are doing that. We have a question over here. Yes. What would you suggest for the tired parent who has, <laughs> um, who has exercised talking to the medical doctor, has gone to a therapy uh, referral, has put their child in with a therapist, and then they turned out to be the kind of therapist that just listens and doesn't have any suggestion, and you don't realize until you sit here at the Women's Empowerment Panel that that's what you're experiencing. And there is no help from the school because the main abuser was the school. The counselor that you asked to speak with never called you back and now your child's homeschooled. Mm -hmm. Where would you suggest that person, that's me, to start? I would say that, you know, that's an extremely hard position to be in. And to be honest, I hear that a lot from a lot of parents. So we did dig a little deeper and the issue is our community is strained for resources. The school is also extremely overwhelmed. The teachers have a lot of responsibility. And teachers, are extreme, a lot of them are extremely good. The counselors are good, but they're spread too thin. And if someone is tired, you know, it's an issue that's become more prevalent right now, especially with COVID times, because the child is at home. The parent, a single parent, can't really go to work if the child's very young. Someone has to monitor that kid being online. So a lot of single moms have actually had to quit work and be home just so that their kid can attend the online classes. So I think, in general, all of us, everyone is struggling. It's just, it's a very bad situation. I would say, you know, friends, family, people who can be positive and support you. You know, reach out for that help. I'm struggling, but don't reach out to your family member and see them struggling. And they might say, well, I'm struggling too. I can't help you. Find someone that you can get together with. I have realized, especially in this pandemic, that people do want to help because everyone's come into the same boat almost. You know, we're needing each other. As humans, we realize 
we are vulnerable during this time and we need each other. So to reach out for that help. And if you do need to take it to a level where someone is really needing help, you know, take it to psychiatry. Let that kid talk to somebody. Unfortunately, the resources in this community are limited. You know, I do realize that working in this community, talk to friends. You know, I will say there are people out there. You just have to tell them, I need help. Can you describe from the, the person got referred and come there do the assessment, and then they got admit in the program, and the nominees sometime in their discharge can be after three days, nominees week. Right now they don't really go much, right longer than a week. Uh, that's of course you can explain. Well, it's that reason. Could be clinical. Could be insurance. And also, I would like to understand our, how our program runs, what resources integrated into the program, what does the multidisciplinary uh, team uh, collaborate together, um, and once the, the patient discharged from the residential treatment, someone to the partial hospital program, right? Some may refer to IOP. Some may refer to the community outpatient program like us for continue their therapy and their medication if they have a medication or already started. So can you just give a little description of the procedure? So our public may know a little more about right, how that runs. Thank you. Well, and I can explain a little bit about that. So when a patient comes to us, let's say from an outpatient clinic, like hers, hers is Desert Behavioral Health, or if someone sees me at my clinic, Satori Behavioral Health, if there's an issue going on which cannot be handled in the home, which means the kid is actively suicidal, they have a plan to go home and overdose on pills, cut their wrist, something extremely serious, we will refer them to the hospital. When they get to the hospital, they go through a process called intake. There is a person there that will assess the kid. Is this an issue that really needs hospitalization or is this something that can be handled at home? If it's a safety issue where the parent has to constantly monitor the child 24 seven, and they're saying, I'm not gonna sleep tonight because I'm afraid what my kid's gonna do. That's when they need a place like this. Or the child is threatening them, like, you know, when you go to sleep, I'm going to beat you up, or I'm going to hurt the younger child, and you don't feel safe. That's a reason why someone should be in the hospital. Or if they're using drugs, they're hearing voices, now they're talking to themselves. Those are reasons for hospitalization. When they go through the intake process, intake will be like, OK, this person really meets this criteria. They will admit them to the inpatient psychiatric floor. Inpatient psychiatry is someone staying in the hospital. Just like you would go to the medical hospital if you were not breathing well or someone had a stroke, they would admit there. Same thing with the hospital like this, except it's for psychiatric reasons. We're trying to maintain safety for that kid or the adult. Um, first, they will rule out any medical causes of this. Once the medical cause is ruled out, they will determine, okay, this is purely psychiatric. We're going to admit them to the floor. On the floor, the sleep is monitored, eating, 
habits are monitored, groups are started, they teach the kid coping skills, the psychiatrist is there to see, does this require medication management? Is this office gonna get better just by helping with medications? That will be determined in the hospital. Usually kids who come and stay at the hospital, it takes about three to seven days to stabilize. Depending on the child, some may take less, some may take more. But after they're stabilized from a program like this, we step them down, which means it could, the parent could say, well, I just want outpatient services, which is once a month or once a week therapy, which we will arrange. Or some parents may think, I need a little bit more because this kid is not currently suicidal, but still thinks about, maybe I should cut myself to relieve some anxiety. Those kind of kids will refer to the partial hospitalization program, which is usually in this town, it's about 10 days, so two weeks, where the child will go there from like nine to three, and the therapist will be there, help them with group therapy, also engage the family, to establish a routine for this kid at home and have that dialogue back and forth. Is this treatment working? We're trying to teach your kid what are their coping skills to use in a difficult time or identify your trigger. What's your trigger? Are loud noises your trigger? Are yelling, screaming your trigger? Um, identifying the trigger to see okay, what coping skill can I build on to use when I have, when I get triggered? So we will teach them that in that kind of program. Once they graduate from that program, they might decide, okay, I do want to still do this, but maybe three times a week, which is intensive outpatient. So I'll do this few hours in the morning or a few hours after school. I have this available to me. And if someone wants that, they can continue with that. If they don't want that, when we step them down to outpatient, which is psychiatry once a month, or psychiatry once in three months, depending on how that person is recommended. Um, medication management alone will not treat most situations. Therapy is, you need it, or this is not going to work a couple of LGBTQ resource centers here in Las Vegas. And if you don't have insurance, they will um, give you therapy once a week. You may have a different therapist on a weekly basis, but they do provide this service. And I think someone was saying before too, it was Ogenchi Musa who was saying journaling. You know, that's a good way to start your process as well. That's a cathartic process to get your headspace right until you can get some help. I guess where, where do we decide, when, when do we know if it's EAP versus just a regular referral? And, and what is EAP? What is that? I think oh, so yeah, I'm sorry. The, yeah, the EAP is an employee assistance program that a lot of employers offer that gives you access to uh, a number of mental health sessions, therapy sessions that are actually covered by your employer. So it doesn't even have anything to do necessarily with your insurance. But generally what I've seen happen, at least for me, is just like you said, I'll get that email from Cigna, oh, we have this person, they want to use their EAP plan. You know, she's 18 years old, she's suffering from depression. Let us know when your next available slot is, right? And so I respond. 
And then normally what happens is if they, if Cigna's approving it and, you know, I say I have a spot open and Cigna's okay with it, they'll normally provide me with a billing code that I utilize, I put into their system or I put it on their, the, the C1500, which the CMS 1500, which is the paper form that we use to reimburse back. And I'll put that code in there and the dates of the session, how long those sessions ran. Um, sometimes they'll come back and ask for just kind of a, a, a clinical update, like are they doing better? Do, do you think they're going to need more sessions so that they can give an additional approval? But generally, yeah, everything's a code usually with insurance. And so, you know, if we're not building the right code, then we don't get paid as clinicians. But, you know, you got your service. And so that's the important piece, right? Did you get what you needed when you came in to see us? <laughs> Any questions about relationships? <laughs> Um, what's the best way to approach your spouse, in my case my wife, if I know that we need therapy? Would it offend her if I say we have to go? Or, or would you have any idea I'll be slowly how to, you know, kind of better? <laughs> That's my question. Or just say it straight out that we need to go to therapy. Well, that's a great question. Of course, they be as soft and kind. When it, it have timing is everything, you know. Timing is everything, and uh, to have that conversation. Thank you. I don't think there's one real one. It's, it's not really one way that you can can do that. Just like timing and place is everything. Wayne, remember you're going to therapy. Although you're a couple, you're still going to therapy for yourself. Okay, that's a good approach to take because lots of times couples will start therapy together, but they won't finish. Right. So the ultimate goal is that you're coming to therapy. You want to share the whole experience and work on issues with another person, but you're ultimately there for yourself. That way that you gain insight and awareness to how you relate to, to the other person, not how the other person necessarily relates to you. You can do get into that point, but just remember you're going for yourself. Well, I want to thank you ladies again for being here. Dr. Gwendolyn Green, Dr. Hasija, and Dr. Cook, Althea Cook. I also want to give a special thanks to Mark Thomas of Sluggin the Magazine, who is our proud sponsor of this event, and it's where I am. Also a special shout out to Kelly. Uh, I don't know her last name, but she is a part of the magazine as well. And I want to thank her for being here personally uh, to attend this conference. Also I want to give a shout out to family and friends who are in support of this. And I also want to give a special, special super duper thanks to all of the supporters from all across the nation for this Women Empowerment Conference. So thank you 91.5 Jazz and more for tuning in to It's Where I Am. I'm here every second Saturday of the month at 8.30 a.m. And don't forget, stay tuned for our Women Empowerment Conference Part 2 on my website, itswhereiam.com.